Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. People need to hear this. And, you know, I talk to all these artists, musicians, writers, indie filmmakers, uh, and I ask them very intimate questions about their financial lives, the kinds of things that you're not supposed to talk about, you're certainly not supposed to ask about. They were very generous with revealing this stuff to me. And many of them said, the reason I'm doing this, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about, is that I wish somebody had told me this when I was starting out as a young artist. Mm-hmm. Young artists need to hear the truth. And the point is not to discourage people from pursuing a career in the arts. It's the last thing I'd want to do. It's, as you said, to give them a realistic picture amidst all of the optimism that's being sold to them. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Bill, welcome to the Unstick Up Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, we had you back here when I came across your book, uh, Excellent Sheep, and, uh, you know, which was all about what you called the miseducation of the American elite. And to me, it was one of those things that really resonated because I, I thought in a lot of ways you're describing my college experience, having gone to a place like Berkeley um, and, and seeing sort of the flaws in that system. And, you know, it, it, trying to connect the dots between the death of the artist and you know, your previous work, as I, I got into it, it started to make a lot more sense. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents while growing up that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Oh, man, you do have this knack of asking important questions that I've somehow never managed to ask myself. Um. Listen, it, it, it was complicated. I'm not going to get into my whole childhood. I mean, by any standards, it was a very good childhood. Uh, but there was conflict. There was conflict between my parents. There was conflict between both of my parents and us. Maybe normal stuff. But stuff that, you know, that um, uh, that leaves a complicated legacy. But um, I, I'll, I'll talk about my dad. I think, I think my mom is harder to talk about. Maybe... Maybe mothering is harder to talk about. Maybe it's harder to sort of identify the things that it leaves, at least in, in my case. I can um, relate. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel like mothers get short shrift, maybe especially when sons talk about their childhood. But that's for another time, perhaps. Right. Um, my dad was a college professor. He was a, he was a professor of engineering. And he had a very sharp mind and a very rigorous mind. Um, especially when applied to scientific subjects. And he, um, I think, at, at, you know, he sort of demanded that we, um, that we have, uh, that we, that we think clearly and sharply as well. It was never formalized, but, you know, there was a thing about family dinners where he would ask us questions, you know, the sort of the classic question, what did you learn in school today? But he would insist that we explain things in a way uh, that was clear and logical. Like we couldn't just get away with, uh, you know, some kind of fuzzy headed answer. Um, again, it didn't necessarily make for the warmest 
parent-child relationships always, <laughs> but I think yeah. he modeled, he did, I, he did model that kind of thinking that even though I ended up going in a different direction professionally and intellectually, you know, I didn't go into the sciences uh, as I once thought I would do, but it ended up not doing. Um, I think the legacy of that kind of uh, responsible thinking, um, thinking where you hold yourself to account, um, uh, was a really important lesson that he taught me. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because, I, and maybe this came up the first time we talked, but I, I happen to be the son of a college professor as well. And uh, it, it's interesting to go in sort of the complete opposite direction of what somebody who takes on, you know, the job with, which comes with the stability of a tenured track position does versus somebody who chose just like me to go and pursue, you know, a creative career. Uh, did you, did you get encouragement to pursue a creative path or was it something that you sort of came to on your own? <laughs> No, you see, this is where we get into the the conflict. Um, yeah. as, as you know, I was a professor. Um, I followed in his footsteps in that way, although I was a humanities professor, and I got a lot of uh, resistance from him back in my early 20s when I, when I decided to leave science and not become a doctor, and I didn't even you know, become a lawyer, although it looked like I was going to do that, and I embarked on this uncertain path, and I studied English, and he wasn't happy. And then I, lo and behold, I managed to get an academic job and he was thrilled and I was sort of redeemed in his eyes. And, you know, ultimately academia wasn't the perfect fit for me. And we kind of came to this mutual divorce. The truth is it was more of academia's initiative than my initiative. But I think that, um, I, you know, I, 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 as, as I think you know, and we might talk about more, I'm resistant to the word creative, especially uh -huh. um, the way it's become ubiquitous now. So I'm resistant to even applying the word to what I do. But certainly, um, you know, becoming a writer is, um, is a very unstructured kind of work, which I think is what you're alluding to. It's not professionally yeah. structured, and I talk about this a lot in the book. So, um, he was not, uh, uh, so, so I think in that sense, when I say that academia didn't, wasn't a perfect fit for me, um, you know, in academia, you need to, you need to specialize and you need to subspecialize, you need to focus. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, um, I think especially in the sciences and social sciences, it's necessary knowledge gets, as knowledge gets, um, more and more extensive and deeper and deeper in any direction the people who produce knowledge need to become more and more specialized. It's, you know, it's appropriate, but it isn't necessarily appropriate for everybody. And I find that I like to think more across topics and disciplines and ways of thinking and sources of, let's say, evidence. Um, so I think that's ultimately what led to my departure, one of the things that led to my departure from academia. And... Um, I embarked on this very uncertain path 12 years ago of trying to sustain myself as a writer. It actually happened to be right around the time that my father was going into his final decline. And um, he felt like here his youngest child, who he thought he had, you know, after many years of uncertainty, had been certain of when I was 34 and I got my academic job. Now, 10 years later, he was about to leave this world and his baby was once again you know how is he going to support himself now i'm 44 and he thought it was i don't know that he thought it was a whim but i think he didn't think it was a very well considered decision 
Um, and that was sort of a painful note to end on. But, um, and this really pertains more to what I talk about in Excellent Sheep, I had long since, because of this conflict with him, come to understand that I needed to not worry about his approval. And uh, it's funny because I have a former student who's become a writer and actually quite a successful writer. And he was also dealing with the fact that his father was not supportive of his work. And I said, you know, I realized that um, I stopped caring about what people thought when I realized that I needed to stop caring about what my father thought. In other words, his approval. And I think that's really important if you're going to do anything creative or even, like I said, you know, what I'm doing, whatever that is. And the point is this, this kind of comes, this comes back to my new book about being an artist today. And one of the things that I discovered when I spoke to a lot of artists about their lives and how they've made their way in the world is that a, almost all of them told me that they knew that they were going to be a writer or a musician or, you know, a film director when they were very young you know, before their teenage years, sometimes when they were very, very young. And the second thing most of them told me was, contrary to what you might think, and I, and I say this because the question you asked me about my own father, um, they got enormous uh, pushback from their families. Very, very few of them felt supported by their parents in making that choice. And this is one of the things that really drives me crazy about how we approach the arts and creativity in this country. And I don't think it's a new thing, quite frankly. Um, we say that we value creativity. We especially say that we value creativity and, uh, and art in children, you know, art education in children. Very few people, very few families, very few schools actually encourage and support artistically gifted children and the message they end up getting not just from their family but from their environment partly because of school is that they're dumb because they're not inclined academic often they're not inclined academically they're not talented academically in the standard way that we expect and value they are talented and gifted in a different way but we can't see that or we don't value it they're dumb they're undisciplined um they uh, they don't have much of a future. They need to think of something else to do. Otherwise, you know, they'll end up on the street. They'll end up in poverty. There's a huge disconnect, I think, in general, between the degree to which we value the arts and say that we value the arts, and actually do in terms of, you know, how important they are in our individual lives, and the way that we support artists, both in terms of our attitudes and financially. Uh. Well, it's it's such an interesting uh, observation. There are a couple of questions that come from this. You know, one thing that I had said um, in my first self-published book, the one that actually kind of, you know, helped me launch a career was that art that rewards its creator long after the average person quits is admired, but it's rarely encouraged. And um, the the funny thing I wonder about this is, is this something that you have found to be pretty universal across cultures? Because I, I think that in an Indian family, because I've said a thousand times, that's pretty standard affair. It's like, yeah, this is a nice hobby, but there's no way you're going to make a career out of this. You know, and I'm glad my parents talked me out of being a music major. I knew there was no real future, no matter how good I was at the instrument, because, you know, there's one tuba player in every orchestra. So I'd be looking at obituaries instead of job boards every day. Uh, <laughs> 
but you know, that being said, you know, I always wondered, like, if I wasn't raised in an Indian immigrant family, would the narrative be different? Or do you find that that's still the case, uh, even with kids who are, you know, born and brought up with parents who aren't immigrants? Right. If you're talking about uh, cross cultures in the sense of American sort of of American subcultures, yeah. Um, Right. Not, not, because I think globally, my impression is, I have not studied this. My impression is that there are other cultures that value the arts and artists more. But in America, I have not seen, I'm not aware of any variation from, you know, I, I was born, I was raised in Jewish culture. You're raised in an Indian culture. It's, it's, it's America. It's not about the culture that you're raised in. There are exceptions yeah. in individual families. Um, but that's different. Um, and, and, you know, is it, you know, it's not even because the parents are in the arts. A lot of times parents in, who are in the arts don't want their kids going into the arts because, hey, it is a tough life. There's no question that it's a tough life. Uh, it can also be an incredibly fulfilling life. And I think if you have a calling for it, then I, I think you're not going to be happy unless you at least give it a shot. You know, I mean, the truth is, even if you have talent and you work your butt off in the arts, the chances of success define not as blockbuster success, but just as being able to do it, to sustain a career. The chances of that, even under those conditions, are small. But I think if you haven't given yourself a shot, at least, and stuck with it, say, till you're 30 or whenever it is, you know, whatever the age is, given it a real shot, I think you're likely to be really bitter <laughs> and, and really resentful. And, yeah. um, and look, and it's hard. I mean, it's hard to have to, you know, to start down a path and then have to change careers because it's not working out. But I think that it can be a lot harder not to do it mm -hmm. you know, yeah. in retrospect. Before we get into Death of an Artist, I want to kind of um, revisit this whole idea of uh, the role of education, particularly, you know, what you call the American elite, uh, you know, especially now in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, where do we go from here with education? Because, you know, like I, I look at things that come out of the Treasury Department and I'm like, I got like a C minus in economics and I feel like I could make policy where the numbers add up better than this. Uh, you know, like it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you can only keep lending money out so long to students, uh, you know, and have nobody pay it back before there are systemic consequences. Yet nobody seems to be thinking that through. It's kind of like they're in this delusional world in which what every student who's borrowed money to finance their education is suddenly going to become a billionaire and pay back all this debt. Do you see that happening? Uh, yeah, I mean the the whole way that system has evolved is is ridiculous. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't want to get into the specifics of student loan debt. I mean, the sure. truth is that even even the even before I mean before the pandemic, you know, we hear about the hundred thousand dollar debt stories. The average debt at graduation is something more like thirty thousand dollars, which is still way too much and can still be a huge burden for a lot of students. Uh, the truth is, a lot of those hundred thousand dollar debt loads are include graduate school and people who borrow to go to medical school yeah. or law school. But still, the, the system is ridiculous. You know, we are over a trillion dollars in debt. And, it, it, you know, whatever people say about it, that, you know, if you increase government loan, you know, the federal loan program, schools have an incentive to raise tuition. It's not true. The main thing that happened, the main driver of that ridiculous explosion of student debt is the defunding of public higher education. Right, you can draw a, a, a direct correlation, intersecting lines, 
between the decline in state funding for public colleges and universities and the growth of student loan debt. Basically, we've shifted the burden of paying for college from the taxpayer to students and families. And, uh, and we did it under the aegis of this ideology that hopefully we are now finally reevaluating that's governed our politics and our economics for the last 40 years, which sometimes people call neoliberalism or economism or free market fundamentalism, whatever it is, that basically says we're all in this on our own as individuals, every man for himself. And in, with respect to higher education in particular and many other things, um, these are private goods that people should be paying for individually rather than public goods that we should all be supporting together collectively. And until we undo that philosophy and the policy consequences of it, um, you're right, the math for college is never going to add up. And I, listen, I'm not, I don't like to make predictions in general. I'm not somebody who's inclined to hopefulness because I'm always skeptical of people saying like, well, the pandemic is going to finally make us address all of these problems that we've been ignoring and we're going to come out of this and everything is going to be better. Uh, not necessarily. But I am hope. I, I just said I'm not hopeful. But I do hope that that will happen. I'm not optimistic that it will happen, but I hope that it will happen. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to have to reevaluate is the way we've been financing college. Yeah. Well, I think it makes really a perfect segue to, to talking about the book because, you know, I think that having chosen the the career that I did, like, and knowing, you know, what kinds of careers many of my peers have chosen over the last 10 years, to find sort of a connection between the purpose of going to college and its intended outcome makes me question whether we need to rethink the purpose of going there. Uh, because if the purpose of going to Berkeley for me was to get a job that, you know, would allow me to pay off my debts and to actually build skills that lead to a career, then it failed on all accounts. If it, you know, if the purpose was to help me evolve as a human being, then yeah, it did. Like there are things that I use nowadays, I realize, like I think about things through an economic lens. It's a hell of a lot more interesting when I'm looking at it in context of my own life as opposed to a bunch of theory by, from a bunch of dead people. So wait, so did you say that it was useful for you to go to college? Yeah, so, well, yeah, I mean, and that's the funny thing, right, is 10, 20 years later, yes, it's useful. I think it's definitely informed the way that I think. The question is, did it, you know, like ROI wise, is it useful enough? You know? Well, here's, the, well, sorry, I, I interrupted you. No worries. No, that's, that's, that's all I had to say. So I'll turn it back over to you. Well, look, I mean, I think, I think the way you just laid it out illustrates what for me is the problem with the way that we think about college and quote unquote return on investment in college. We've gotten yeah. this idea that the way it works is you go to college, you study X, you know, you, you, you pay a certain amount of money or borrow a certain amount of money to study X, you get a job in field X, and that in allows you to pay off your debt slash monetize, you know, get a return on the investment you made, whether you borrowed or just paid or your parents paid directly. That's not how it works. I mean, yes, it may be how it works in vo certain vocational fields, community college, fine. But if we're talking about a liberal arts education, if we're talking about a four-year college experience, that's not how it works. It's not how it's designed to work. Um, it's not a, you know, a point-to-point -point linear um, trajectory from X to X, from X major to X job. It is what you just described about yourself. It is four years of learning how to think better, learning to be becoming a more interesting person. Uh, it is not quantifiable. 
It is, it can be described, but it can't be measured. It has to do with peer-to-peer learning. This is also why the residential part of a residential college is such an important part of the experience. It has to do maybe with conversations with professors outside of class. Um, you can't draw direct lines, but you know, in the best in, in, in the best case scenario, which sounds like it was your case, and I think as many yeah. people's cases, you know that your mind, your for lack of a better, better word, yourself, your being, has been enriched in all kinds of ways, and that this quote unquote pays dividends, both financial and non financial, throughout your entire life. So ideally it's it's just like what you said. It's not like you get out of college and you say, oh, I'm going to be able to apply these. 10 years later, 20 years later, you look back and you say, now I understand how valuable that experience was to me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. I realize the the discipline to, you know, take on a long-term project like writing a book and, and sticking with it and working on it every day, that absolutely was informed by my experience of going to college where it was a ruthless environment. Yeah, but also, I mean, listen, I, I don't know you, and I don't know what you would say, and, we, and it's a counterfactual question, but if you had not gone to college, if you had just gone straight from high school to whatever whatever it was you would have done in the world, yeah. I mean, would you have been able to do what you've done in the world? I don't think so, because, it, you know, perspective uh, is, is formed by, like, experience. Like, I, I have... You know, I mean, why do I ask the questions I do? I mean, part of it is that I've had the life experiences that I've had. You know, this comes from, you know, my own experience. And, and I, yeah, you're right. I don't think I would be able to do what I do, at least not on the same level. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, we all, we all have experiences, whether we go to college or not. And this is not to denigrate people who don't go to college. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, they're they're capable of doing lots of terrific things. But, I mean, if we think that, education is valuable, then we have to recognize that there's a difference between people who got an education, not, or not the people, but the, but, but the life trajectories that become available. Right. Uh So it's college, residential college at a, at a, at a place like Berkeley, uh, a place that makes demands on its students that takes learning seriously is, or should be four years of, uh, you know, four years and four years at the start of adulthood, right? Where you're asking basic questions about yourself, where you're asking basic questions about the world. And you are examining those questions in ways that are formal in the classroom, but much more importantly, informal with your friends, talking the, you know, hashing these things out, maybe engaging in activism, maybe engaging in extracurricular activities that I'm not even going to say that it builds all kinds of skills because that's again to talk the language of assessment and the return on investment. They build you as a person in innumerable nameless ways. Um, and that's why, I mean, I think the last number I saw, something like 70% of people are in job, of college graduates are in jobs that are not directly related to their major because it's not about a direct relationship. It's about becoming the kind of person who is capable of being flexible and starting in one field and, and acquiring, you know, experience, job experience, knowledge, but being able to transfer to another field, being able to quit and start their own thing like you did, you know, quit, quit a job, start your own thing. Um, that's what, but explaining that to Skeptical state legislature, state state legislators who are, you know, creating budgets for state universities. You know, it was really tough, um, especially when we've when we've 
evolved to this point, to this attitude about college that, you know, we don't need any goddamn art history majors in our state. I mean, you know, governors have said things like that. We should just be producing engineers. We, we need to change the whole conversation about, about education and what it's for. Yeah. And I mean, I've been arguing this for years, that it's not just about the job market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about building human capacities that enrich, enrich society in much, in much different ways. It, and that we need to treat it not just as a civil right, but as a human right. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of no more art history majors, let's get into the, the concepts in the book. Um, what, what led you to want to explore um, this idea in particular? Like what planted the seed for the death of the artist? Right. So let's, to explain to people, The Death of the Artist is a book about how artists of all kinds, writers, musicians, visual artists, people who make film and television, are making a living or trying to make a living in the 21st century economy, which means above all the economy as it's been transformed by the internet. So the people who produce the things that are so important to us that we spend so much of our life consuming and appreciating and that enrich our lives so much, and especially now that we're in lockdown, I think we've become especially aware of this and we're reading more and we're, you know, frantically searching Netflix for good things to watch. Um, how do those people make a living? And in particular, how do they make a living in an age when, as you know, to, to use the to use the term that's always used, content has been demonetized, right? We it's free everything, free music, free text online, right? You know, you know, newspaper articles, whatever. Um, um, free video, right? Free images. Uh, everything is free. How do people get paid? Well, you know, for years I've been hearing like, oh no, it's good because, because everything is free, you get free exposure. And so there's never been a better time to be an artist. This is the narrative that's been coming out of Silicon Valley for a long time. Silicon Valley, and I think the journalists and academics who tend to be aligned with Silicon Valley, uh, people who write for places like Wired and Fast Company, uh, academics who um, defend piracy and and attack the idea of copyright. Um, I was always skeptical of that story because it, it never seemed to really think the issue through carefully enough. Like, okay, you'll get free exposure. And then at what point do you get to turn that into a living, to, mon- to be crass about it? At what point do you get to monetize that? And what I, all, what I was also hearing, especially for musicians, because music was hit first and hardest ever since Napster, which was in 1999, um, 1999 or 2000. So right at the beginning of, of the new century, uh, musicians were saying, like, we can't make a living at this. Like, no, we can't make a living at this. How are we supposed to do this? Um, so on the one hand, people saying there's never been a better time. And on the other hand, people saying there's no money in this. Um, but I also knew that people were still making art. People were, were still making music. They were still making independent films. They were still writing novels. So the question that I went into the book with was, how's it actually happening? And what does it actually look like? Which of these two stories is true? And what I found is that mainly the story the artists were telling is true. It's really, really hard. What I would say is that before the internet, I mean, it's always been hard to be an artist, but if you were a full-time working artist who was successful, uh, not in, you know, blockbuster terms, you weren't a superstar, but you were successful in the sense that you were producing on a regular basis, 
you had these, you know, the recognition as, and esteem of your peers, you had built an audience of a certain size, that you could live a middle-class life. Uh, the term middle class tends to be very fraught in artistic circles because it implies a whole set of values that artists are supposed to reject. I'm not talking about the values of the middle class. I'm just talking about a middle class standard of living. So uh, decent housing, uh, decent health care. Uh, you can take a vacation every once in a while. Maybe you can send your kids to college. Um we're now, you know, so that, that's the old system, middle-class lifestyle. Uh, between that and, you know, zero money at all, we're about halfway. So it's not that you can live a middle-class lifestyle. It's more like you can live a working-class lifestyle. And we know what it means to be working-class in this country at this point. It means to be living hand-to-mouth. It means that you don't have decent health care. Uh, you're paying a huge percentage of your money in, in rent. Uh, your housing situation may not be stable at all. Many of the artists I spoke with told me that they did not feel they could afford to have children, let alone send them to college. Um, the idea of taking a real vacation was a dream. They worked, they work all the time. And this is a situation we have, and we can talk in, you know, more about why, why it is the way it is. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's digital demonetization, but it's other things as well. Mm-hmm. But that's where we are. Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I think that on, on the one hand, um, I looked at this and part of it saddened me because I was like, wow, this is, is kind of a pessimistic viewpoint. But then the other hand, I was like, this is absolutely realistic. It, it's the narrative that nobody wants to admit is true um, and that we don't do enough justice to. You know, one of the things you said, um, you know, you were quoting Stephen Johnson, where you said it's, you know, in this New York Times piece, he said, it's never been easier to start making money from creative work, wrote Johnson in the creative apocalypse that wasn't the clueless piece of data journalism in the New York Times magazine for your passion to undertake that critical leap from pure hobby to part-time income source. And then you say, the argument is typically served with a side of cherry-picked success stories, usually the same ones because there aren't too many to go around. And that was in reference to books by Tim Ferriss, Gary Vaynerchuk, Chris Gillibo. I mean, hell, I mean, any one of the people that have been guests on my podcast could have easily replaced the people that you used as examples. And I don't say that as criticism against them. That's just the truth. And the, you know, it takes me back to something I brought up with, uh, you know, other guests. And it's something one of my mentors said, um, that we don't acknowledge the role that talent and intelligence play in people's accomplishments nearly enough because this, you know, personal development narrative is so sort of, you know, rose colored glasses. Everybody could be anything. You can be any kind of artist you want because it sells. It's, you know, an uplifting and inspiring story, but we use outliers as models of possibility. And in that, we completely ignore the probability that that could be us. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. Um, There's this huge, you know, creativity industry that's selling people optimism, that's selling people positivity, that's selling people a dream. And they always point to the examples that we can all point to of people who've come from nowhere and had the viral song or tweeted funny things and got, you know, uh, 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 and, and ended up getting picked up and put into a writer's room in Hollywood and now have careers as comedy writers. These people are exceptions and they represent a tiny fraction of everyone who's trying to do it. Um, it's not entirely unfair to compare the situation to a lottery. And everybody thinks they're going to win the lottery because they've heard of the person who's won a million dollars or $30 million. 
Um, you mentioned talent and intelligence. And yeah, obviously, if you don't have a lot of talent, you don't have a chance. But it isn't just talent. And especially in the arts, luck plays a huge factor that people don't want to recognize. And it isn't even just luck. I mean, one of the things I think in the book is that, yes, um, you have a chance to do the thing that Stephen Johnson said and, you know, produce your own work and put it out there. Um, and here are the ways that you can promote yourself. And I talk about that in the book, too. I mean, there is a positive side to the book and the ways that the Internet has enabled people to circumvent gatekeepers, speak directly to the audience, build an audience directly. All of that is true. One thing that's also true is that everyone has heard this, too. You're not the only person who's heard this message, which means that everybody is trying to do it. Um, since I was coming on this podcast, I checked. Uh, do you happen to know or would you like to guess how many podcasts there are now? Uh, a couple hundred thousand, maybe more. A million. There are a million podcasts. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the latest estimate. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that every, everyone or um, many of the people who started those podcasts think that their podcast is going to end up like your podcast or maybe like Joe Rogan's podcast and have a huge audience and will sustain them and maybe even sustain them, you know, at a high level of wealth. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Uh, yes, people need to hear this. And, you know, I talk to all these artists, musicians, writers, indie filmmakers, uh, and I ask them very intimate questions about their financial lives, the kinds of things that you're not supposed to talk about, you're certainly not supposed to ask about. They were very generous with with revealing this stuff to me. And many of them said, the reason I'm doing this, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about, is that I wish somebody had told me this when I was starting out as a young artist. Young artists need to hear the truth. And the point is not to discourage people from pursuing a career in the arts. It's the last thing I'd want to do. It's, as you said, to give them a realistic picture amidst all of the optimism that's being sold to them. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny. I, I just finished reading a book called, um, uh, I don't remember the exact uh, title, but the subtitle was How the Relentless Pursuit of Positive Thinking is Undermining America. Um, and it just made me think about that and, and how much we actually do have this sort of relentless promotion of positive thinking. And, and I know that I play a part in it. Uh, and also, but, but I also try to balance that with some semblance of realism because, you know, the thing that I always have to tell people is that, okay, there's numerous issues with, you know, one, the people who are telling you this, right? There's a self-interest issue. Like if I went out and started a course on how to build a podcast and, you know, told people, oh, you should start a podcast. Well, you know, one of the problems with that is people overlook the fact that I have a massive benefit from telling you that. Like, there's a huge self-interest component involved, and yet people, you know, they take the the word of some internet celebrity as gospel because that person got a particular result. And you know, I always say, like, this actually was the core ethos of my 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 sort of my work and, and the work I did around my first book was that this overlooks the f most blatantly obvious variable that throws off every one of these formulas, and that's you. You know, we don't take that into consideration at all. It, it's kind of amazing that you don't consider the context of the person. Um, it, that that has always blown my mind. Right. You know, in terms of, of where we're at with this. But you know, you you brought up. Uh, you know, I, I'm really glad you brought up both sort of the fact that yeah, this is possible. Like, look, I wouldn't be able to have 
you know, do what I'm doing today, even when I was at Berkeley. One of the things that I found so frustrating was that if I had an idea, I didn't have the technical skills to, you know, execute it. And today, that's not the case. But, you know, the other thing I've said is, you know, just because we can go from idea to execution in rapid time, it doesn't mean we're going to experience success as quickly. Like, whatever semblance of success, and I'm nowhere near on the level of Joe Rogan, has taken me 10 years to get to Mm. where we're at now, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've, our audience is smaller than most of the people who started after us and we've grown slower, but you know, we've built this very sort of loyal audience. We've stuck to it and, you know, focused on mastery, but none of this would have been possible 10 years ago or even, you know, when, I mean, mm. when I was in college. So you have that side of it, but you know, you actually talk about, you know, DIY and you said, you know, basically the good news is you have the freedom to pursue the new opportunities. The bad news is so does everyone else. Uh, you know, and you say basically the good news is you can do it yourself. The bad news is that you have to. And the funny thing is, even when you have the funding of a gatekeeper, I know this from having done a book with a publisher, as you do as well, you're kind of left to fend for yourself after they pay out your advance. So let, let's talk about this whole DIY idea. Like what what are the pros and cons to this? Oh, yeah. Um, again, I mean, I think you said that really well, including the fact that, that one of the things that people don't really tell you or don't like to emphasize is that it takes years even to build a modest success. Uh, and before we get to your question, I just also want to say that it's, it's very, um, candid of you, you know, to acknowledge that people have an interest in selling you this story, but the people we need to, we need to emphasize this, the people who really have an interest in this, the people who are really making a fortune from all of this DIY, just put your stuff out there, creativity, are the tech giants. Yeah. Right? Um, they're making tens of billions of dollars a year. And they're the ones who are sta- really, I think, standing in the way of an equitable distribution uh, of the rewards of our, of, of, our, of our artistic endeavor to artists, right? Because, you know, we say that content has been demonetized, but it's only been demonetized at the point of sale. The tech giants are counting the clicks and selling the data and making a fortune. And that money needs to, a lot of that money needs to go back to artists and and the system yeah. there's no system to do that but you're to get to get to your question about DIY actually can i well, can i interrupt you yeah, normally sure, I, please, I, go I, ahead. I i i i want to go deeper into this cuz i actually highlighted yeah. the sections that you wrote about this so it's really it, it's interesting that you bring up this facebook thing cuz i you know i was explaining this metaphor to you know a group that i, I did an audience building mastermind to and i i said look I said, you know, this is kind of the delusion that, you know, these giant social networks have created is that, oh, you know, you're building your audience, you're building your platform. But then, you know, what you don't understand is you're building an empire on rented land. Like you literally have to pay to access the audience that you built on Facebook's platform. You know, yes. it, it's, it's so it's absurd. And it, it's kind of like, and I said, you know, so what happens when the landlord decides to raise the rent, aka they make a change in the algorithm, you're basically screwed. Uh, you know, so we actually moved all of our, our social media over to a private, you know, uh, social network called Mighty Networks, which has been seeing a lot of traction for this very reason, um, because of the fact that you actually own your data, you know, you own the platform. Whereas, you know, like people have literally spent years, it's like you might have an audience of a million people on Facebook, but the moment they make one change, you're screwed. And, uh, I, but the thing is, like you said, they've entrenched themselves in such a way that the problem with that whole system is now there are these people who are completely dependent on, you know, other platforms in order to grow their audience. I saw it happen with Medium firsthand, where we were getting huge amounts of email subscribers from Medium. And then eventually it just, you know, we reached a point of diminishing returns. Because you talk about what Jerome Lanier said about being first, right? 
where mm-hmm. he said, you know, uh, when a new platform is emerging during that fleeting magic moment when a network is gaining effect, a small time player might just score a once in a lifetime spectacular lift. That was me on Medium. I got a book deal mm-hmm. because of Medium. I guarantee you that was the reason. Okay, well, there you go. That's right. Uh, being first. And and if you've heard of something already, you're not going to be first. But what you said, <laughs> yeah. I mean, about, about Facebook in particular, I mean, this has happened multiple times, not just with individuals, but with media ventures. It's like, you know, media ventures that are designed specifically around Facebook's current algorithm. And then when they change the algorithm, these places literally get wiped out and go out of business. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, we could, we could talk about Google, which owns YouTube and, uh, and they're really, Google is, well, Facebook is the worst, but Google's pretty bad too. And Google makes a fortune from piracy. I, I just heard, uh, somebody quoted a number that up to a third of Google's revenue may come from piracy. Wow. Um, pirated results, piracy on YouTube. YouTube also, YouTube also accounts for about half of all online music streaming and the streaming rate they pay is a fraction of what Spotify or Apple Music pays, which are, is already, and those numbers are already insultingly small. Basically, uh, last numbers I saw, if your music is streamed a million times on YouTube, a million times, you get $700. But Google's, you, wow. Yeah. Yes, people are amazed when they hear this. This is why streaming is not a viable model for musicians, wow. despite what people think. Right. So, um, so the tech giants are making a fortune. And yes, as you say, you're at the mercy of the tech giants. Um, we, we need to figure out a a way to, 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 to construct a different system. And that's probably a whole nother conversation. Uh, your next book. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe my next book, or maybe it's just what this book leads into. I mean, there are, I talk in the last chapter about people who are working on this and, and, and the need above all else to break up the tech monopoly so they don't have this kind of power to break up the monopolies to either actually enforce copyright law or strengthen copyright law. I mean, the fact that Google can get away with this, the fact that, you know, YouTube, which is, has been valued at $300 billion. I mean, we don't know exactly how much it's worth because it's part of Google as much as $300 billion. It was built on piracy, very mindfully built on piracy. That was, which is, was illegal. Um, but they knew that that's how they could outcompete their, you know, like Yahoo, right. Was by, Mm -hmm. with, you know, pirated Hollywood movies basically. Um, but you want to talk about DIY? Yeah, let's go into DIY because it's, look, I, I honestly, I got my book deal thanks to DIY because I was able to self publish and yet I'm well aware of the fact that, you know, who can like, I, 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 I think I remember writing a Facebook post about this once. I was like, if you were to try to reverse engineer my career path, it would be an idiot's guide to how to succeed in life because what it would be get fired from all your jobs, write Really transparent Facebook status updates that would never get you another job and compile them into a book and pray that Glenn Beck finds it. Not really <laughs> an effective strategy to become, you know, a, a published author. Like I would never tell anybody to follow in my footsteps. That would be idiotic. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, none of that would have been possible without DIY. Yeah, look, and, and I do talk about this in the book and I have, you know, a couple of dozen profiles of individual artists, some of whom have been pretty successful. Um, again, not massively successful, just like live a decent life successful, which I think is a much more important model. And, and most of those stories have been enabled by the new tools 
the DIY tools that the internet has created. This is not a book about it. The internet is bad or everything is bad in the arts because of the internet. You know, as I say in sort of the big chapter that I, that where I lay out the basic conditions, there's bad news, there's good news, and then there's bad news about the good news. But the, focus, <laughs> right, the bad news is demonetization and the destruction of journalism as an income source and so on and so various other things. But the good news yeah. is what we're talking about now is that you really can produce your, you know, you have the digital tools to produce your own stuff. That's a big thing just to begin with, you know, these amazing new digital cameras that came in, what, about 12 years ago, um, and, you know, music editing software and all that stuff. Um, you have the tools to reach your audience directly which means that you can build your own audience, you can market to your own audience, you can circumvent the gatekeepers. All of that is true. It's just, you have to realize, first of all, it's really hard. It takes a ton of work. As you just said about your own career, a lot of it re requires on fortuity and unforeseen circumstances and getting lucky. And, you know, the bad news about the good news we've already talked about, not only do you have to do it yourself, but everyone else is trying to do it. And the numbers are just, you know, mind-boggling. There's uh, over a million books are self-published. You self-published a book. There's over a million self-published books that come out every year, every year. Mm -hmm. So, but if you've got talent, if you've got drive, if you you feel like this is what you have to do with your life, uh, or you'll never be happy, and you're willing to put in the work. Uh, and you also maybe have money from your family, money from a partner, some kind of financial cushion, some way, maybe you lucked into a good day job that enables you to really make progress on your work. If, 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 then yeah, you have a chance. It may not be a great chance, but you have a chance and you have a chance in ways that you didn't have before. And you can have careers like your career, like a lot of the careers, a lot of people I talked to that you could never have had in the old and the system, yeah. in some ways, is more open to people whom the traditional culture industries, like the publishing industry, haven't been able to see as well. People who aren't white, mm -hmm. people who aren't men. All of that is true. Yeah. And I think I gave it its due in the book. It's just, that's the only part of the story that's ever told now. And I want people mm -hmm. to understand that that's only part of the story. Yeah, no, I, I, and I really appreciate that. So, you know, let's talk briefly about publishing. Uh, that was, you know, obviously the one I related to most because that's what I, I've been through. You know, you say with few exceptions among the more prominent indies, only the bigger publishers have even a fighting chance to turn profit on serious work because they alone have the marketing muscle to help it break, break through to public awareness. And I thought that was interesting because my experience with publishing, and this is from working with one of the big five, you know, and also yeah. like one of the most like prominent parts of the big five publishing, like our, the imprint that I was part of was Seth Godin, Simon Sinek, like Ryan Holiday, as I told you. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing when I think about their marketing muscle, it's like, I think they're very selective about where they choose to flex that muscle. Because, you know, my joke is that they're just like venture capital. What they do is they basically make little bets on all of us and Tim Ferriss and Michelle Obama make up for the losses they took on everybody else. No, that's exactly right. I mean, but this is also this is also the good thing about the culture industry is that it operates by spreading risk. Um, mm -hmm. Part of the problem with with uh, with the arts is that you it's really hard, basically impossible to tell in advance who the successes are going to be. I mean, Michelle Obama was probably a pretty good guess, but in general, you don't know, Hollywood doesn't know which movies are going to break through. 
publishing doesn't know which books are going to break through, but they can spread risk. They can, they can uh, fund, you know, nine, uh, 10 literary authors. Nine of them are going to lose money. One of them is going to make up for the rest, but they don't know in advance, right? This enables them to, you know, support those 10 uh, literary novelists. Um, Self-publishing can be, you know, can be good. Again, it's it's still, it's still a tiny fraction of people who act it, but even the most, uh, even the strongest advocates of self-publishing who I talked to told me it doesn't really work for literary fiction. It doesn't really work for serious nonfiction. Self-publishing is really good for genre fiction, you know, romance, thriller, crime, horror. It's good for kind of specialized sort of nonfiction books, you know, how to make cornmeal crust pizza, whatever it is. Um, not, and, and, you know, what you need, you know, as much as people hate the big publishers and there are reasons to hate them, I think, I think it's overblown, just like with the music, you know, with the record labels that everybody loves to turn into a a boogeyman. I think the story is overblown, but what they can do is support, is take risks, is place bets. What you just said, and listen, I'm also a mid-list author. I understand this. I'm not Michelle Obama you know, or Jonathan Franzen, right, is that people tend to feel like they're not getting enough support from their publisher. They wish they did more for them. They wish they spent more on the marketing budget. Let's say a couple of things. First of all, uh, authors have always felt this way. Second of all, publishers are under a lot of financial pressure themselves. It's not like they're going out for three martini lunches anymore. Third of all, if you compare the, you know, stingy marketing budgets that you and I are complaining about from big five publishers with the kind of support you get from an indie press, mm-hmm. which is basically zero yeah. because it's not because they're bad. I mean, they do some great work. They just have no money. I mean, the advances might be $5,000 from an indie press wow. or if you're self publishing, you don't have anybody, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got, this is part of what I, uh, this is part of what I can't stand about Stephen Johnson's argument that there's never been a better time to start making money. First of all, start making money may mean five bucks, right? It may not mean more than that. Second of all, you're not factoring how much it costs you to, to just even make that start, right? Um, doing this stuff isn't free. Even just the tools are not as cheap as people think, like good music software, but you have to factor in your own time, right? I mean, if you spend... You know, like I said to that guy, that self-publishing guy, I said, if if I wanted to make thousands of dollars by working hundreds of hours, I could work for Walmart. They will also pay me thousands of dollars for hundreds of hours of work. They will pay me $10 (laughs) an hour. Yeah. Um, You know, so, uh, so yeah, right. We, you know, I think authors grumble and I think maybe we're right to, and I think it could be very disappointing at the extent to which publishers you know we feel the publishers are supporting our work i should say i yeah. i don't i don't have complaints and uh, yeah. i'm not just saying that i mean i feel like i've been lucky well, but listen lots of but com- compared to what what is the alternative yeah no i i hear you i mean look i i in all honesty i think the skills that i got from the process and the quality that i was you know held to and the standards that i was held to fundamentally changed how i worked that alone whether i ever get to do another book again that's a skill that will actually stay with me for the rest of my life um, and that right there is priceless. Like, you know, that's going to pay dividends well beyond whatever I made off of my books. So <clears throat> I think that, yeah. that there's also that aspect of it. You, I think you learn how to operate as a professional creative. 
Oh, that's good. And, and also, let's say, especially if we're talking about nonfiction, and even, and even fiction, really, that um, publishing a book can be a loss leader for you. It's, it's not about how much you make from the book. It's about the platform that it gives you. I mean, you publish a book, mm-hmm. say a nonfiction book in a certain area, then you become an expert. If it's a good book and it gets yeah. attention, you become the expert in that area and you can give talks and you can give workshops and you can, you know, that's really sort of how it works. Totally. If you're a fiction writer, maybe you get a job at a university. Let's talk about this idea of what you call the fourth paradigm. You say that we live in an age of economic atomization, a time when more and more of us are not professionals, durably attached to institutions, not workers, durably attached to employers, and God knows, not entrepreneurs, but simply producers, free particles in the marketplace, finding what work we can for what money we can and exposed without protection to the market's whims. The artist is a producer then, the fourth paradigm. Can you, beyond what I just read, can you expand on that and explain to people what this fourth paradigm is? Right. So I'm, uh, I'm trying to, it sounds like business speak when you, when you say that now I'm (laughs) just, I feel about the phrase when it's taken in isolation, but in the context of the book, um, I have a section of the book where I try to trace the history of how artists have operated in the market and how we've thought about artists, because we have this image of the artist as sort of the solitary heroic, genius, romantic, artist, creative. Um, that's a, a, sort of our image, bohemian. Um, not really involved in the market. The you know, money and the market um, um, are, are contaminate art, and art should remain pure and separate from it. Uh, that, even as an image, even as a myth, is already many decades out of date. So actually, you asked me how I came to write the book. I'm not going to excavate the whole process, but sort of the key moment was when I was putting together a talk for an art school here in Portland about this idea of the quote-unquote creative entrepreneur that we hear about and how artists are becoming creative entrepreneurs. And I started to think about the history of, well, what have artists been? You know, how did we get from solitary genius to creative entrepreneur? And I realized it's not just those two. There are four phases or paradigms that I lay out in the book. First of all, the old Renaissance and before that, artists were artisans. The two words were synonymous. This whole idea of the artist as this kind of special genius creative person is only about 300 years old. It has to do with other changes, uh, the changes that we call modernity, secularization, the decline of sort of um, religious authority. We can now create our own meaning. So we have intellectuals, we have scholars in the modern sense. And we have artists in the modern sense. So phase, paradigm one, artism. Paradigm two, that is also enabled by capitalism in a way that art doesn't really like to look at, people could become artists with a capital A because they could sell in the marketplace and were no longer dependent on aristocratic or church patronage. So now you could say what you wanted, which before you couldn't do. Phase to that, and but you were sort of on the margins of the market. So. Paradigm two, 19th century, is the, is the bohemian, where you're kind of, you can live cheaply and you're making your art and you're sort of uh, peripheral to the market. The third paradigm emerges after World War II when we have the artist as professional, MFA programs, artists teaching at universities, professional organizations and associations and awards. And on the for-profit side, we have the rise of the music, big music industry, big publishing industry, Hollywood. Um, Artists don't like to talk about this, but artists basically became professionals, successful artists anyway. uh, And that's what enabled them to live middle-class lives. Now we're moving into the fourth paradigm. 
that you asked me about and that I spend a long chapter trying to begin to describe and excavate. All of the things that sustained the professional paradigm, the professional model, are starting to break down, partly because of digital de- demonetization. Amazon, the publishing industry is contracting and consolidating. The music industry, the same thing. It's become almost impossible to fund independent films. Um, and at the same time, we have all the DIY stuff that you and I were talking about, where you can become, quote unquote, a creative entrepreneur. But I really don't like that term, creative entrepreneur. I don't like the term creative, and I don't like the term entrepreneur. And part of the reason I don't like the term entrepreneur in the context of an artist is that you're not really an entrepreneur. You're not really building a business that's going to grow and add employees and you know issue stock and create equity. Uh, the term entrepreneur, I think, has really been sold to you know gig workers in general and creative you know, independent creative people, whether they're artists or not in general, as kind of an alibi for the situation they're in, a kind of uh, salve, you know, or sugarcoating for the turd of gig work. Um, You know, you're going to be an entrepreneur. No, that's not really what you are. Uh, What I end up, uh, the word I end up landing on is producer. And that's the quote that you read. You know, you're not exactly a worker either because you're, you are self-employed. Uh, it's this new kind of thing. It's this new sort of um, economic actor that, you know, the neoliberal economy, the gig economy, the internet is forcing many people, not just artists, to become where you're, as as you read, a free particle in the marketplace. You're just you're just out there in the market making do. Sometimes you're a worker. Sometimes you're you know, literally a worker. You know, you do sort of short term work or whatever. Uh, you do a little teaching. Um, Maybe you get a job at a museum, you get a job as an art handler, whatever. Um, you're producing your own work and selling it directly to the audience. So in that sense, you're kind of a miniature small business. Um, and that's and 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 really the the sort of the important point here for the relate you know for the artist in society is that in the bohemian model, the bohemian paradigm, you could kind of be peripheral to the market. In the professional paradigm, you were attached to institutions that shielded you from the market, right? If you taught at a university, it was the university who worried about the, you know, the, the donors and the tuition. If you, you know, you know, had a contract with a major label, the label worried about the business. Now, as a producer, it's just you and the market. And that means that art and the artist has to respond to market forces and to market pressures, and to market values in a way that they really haven't had to do before. And I think that that's changing the nature of art and it's changing the nature of what it means to be an artist. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, we've kind of painted the picture and I know you wrapped the book by, um, you know, kind of giving us a potential way out of this mess. And you talk about the fact that we shouldn't mourn, but we should organize. And, Hmm. you know, given the fact that we have a president who has basically taken away funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, and you combine that with the fact that, you know, as a culture, you know, as a part of the American subculture, we don't necessarily value uh, the arts, even though we say we do. How do we get out of this mess? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think public funding for the arts is important, but let's be honest. It's an incredibly tiny fraction, not just of the overall economy, but of the whole arts economy. So I want the NEA to continue, but it's, its budget is like $160 million. 
it's yeah. it's a joke. So that that's not the main issue. The main issue is the other stuff we were talking about, like big tech and how it's sucked all the money away from everybody, including artists. How do we address that? So in the last chapter, Don't Mourn, Organize, I talk about ways that artists are organizing. Um, and a lot of it, you know, I mean, a lot of it is like really kind of nitty gritty, very painstaking, um, you know, leg- lobbying work, for example, trying to get Congress to to uh, amend the Digital Millennium Copyright Act so it, piracy is harder, um, you know, creating a small claims court. I mean, it's really for copyright infringement. I mean, it's really sort of people who are really doing the hard work, uh, you know, working, you know, to get museums to pay artists for for the work that artists do, for like giving talks, which is often un, unpaid. Um, but I say, as great as all this stuff is, it's not commensurate with the scale of the problem. I mean, it's, it's important that that stuff happen, but what we really need to do, first of all, is to deal with big tech, break up big tech in order to um, uh, diminish their enormous power to, to dictate terms to artists. You were talking about how Facebook can just charge you more to reach your audience, you know? It can do that because it's a monopoly. You have nowhere else to go for social media, essentially. Um, you know, Amazon's position in the book business. I mean, it's like two-thirds of the entire market at this point. Um, and then I say, you know what? We need to do that. And even that is not really enough. And this is where I tie back in. You know, you asked at the beginning of the talk, like, what does this have to do with excellent sheep? What does this have to do with higher education? In some ways, they're different topics. But at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, I tie them together and I say at the end of the book, look, um, what's happening to, col- to the college experience and what's happening to the arts are both rooted in the fundamental sin of contemporary American society. I'm not talking about historic sins and crimes like racism or specifically racism. I'm talking about you know, what characterizes the last 20 to 40 years in particular. It's this ridiculous inequality that we have. And that's what we need to attack. If we're going to make the world better for artists, we're going to need to make the world better for workers, for middle-class people, and to the extent that we even have a middle-class anymore. In general, we need to get serious about passing, um, about updating labor law for the gig economy. We need to get serious about raising the minimum wage, about dealing, as you asked, with about student debt, we need free college and university again, I think. Um, that's, that's really the big picture. And it may seem like overwhelming and daunting. You know, how do you approach something like this? Well, yeah, you're right. We start by electing a different set of leaders. It seems incredibly daunting, but we have to be honest that that's what it's going to take, that we can't just sort of nibble at this around the edges. Wow. Um, this has been really, really just eye-opening and thought-provoking. So I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. <laughs> it's such a good question. And it's so relevant to what we're talking about. I mean, yeah. you know, the, uh, you know, what makes, look, what makes the arts both so wonderfully important to us? And also such a hard career to pursue. It's that any good work of art, song, novel, film, whatever, 
is unmistakable. It's un, it's unique, right? I mean, these are unique products. You can't go to one novelist for what another novelist does the way you can for a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or many almost any other thing. Um, it's really, really hard to make something that's unmistakable, to make something that's unique. I mean, it takes years for artists to find their voice and to break through and to refine, continue to refine their vision, to continue to challenge themselves. I mean, one of the things that I was left with was just how remarkable artists are. I know that's a cliche, but like, I really, I really kind of learned that in a new way. Like these people are not like you and me. They're certainly not like me. Um, they're, always challenging themselves they're always restless they can never they don't have a job they don't have a you know they they can't just keep doing the thing that they've always been doing it always has to be a new unmistakable thing and by the same token that's why they the the products of their efforts are so wonderful and unique themselves and so vital and so essential and why we need to support support them in a way that we're not supporting Amazing. Um, well, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. This has just been uh, really, really thought provoking. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and the new book? You can just Google the death of the artist and, you know, you will find it. Um, you can find me on my website, com. I know that means you have to spell my last name. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I think if you Google the death of the artist, the, you know, the book comes out July 28th, um, anywhere you can buy a book, you can buy this book. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.